Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week in The Kick, we bring you the 50 best running cities in America. It is the cover package of our October issue, which should start arriving in subscribers' homes this week and hit newsstands next week. And we did a really cool thing for this issue. We shot three different covers in three of the cities in the top 10 on our list, shooting local runners in each city. You can find out what three cities those are and what the number one running city in America is later in the kick. And speaking of covering the country, we also bring you the World War II veteran who is 93 years old and just completed his three-year run across America. But first, we've got a special episode for you, a show devoted entirely to answering your questions about the marathon, about training and racing and everything you need to know to get ready and perform your best on race day. We assembled a roundtable of experts here at Runner's World, executive editor Tish Hamilton, training director Bud Coates, and chief running officer Bart Yasso. The crew gets into proper fueling and hydration and what to do when you, inevitably, hit the wall. They also demystify the whole positive-negative split thing and talk about how to prep your legs for hilly courses. Jumping rope is actually very good uh, because you're leaving the ground, you're landing, you're, you're, you're forcing the, the uh, legs to bend in an eccentric way, and you're also training the calves at the same time. And they explain exactly how and why to avoid the number one marathon mistake, which I have made personally many times and surely will make again, despite my best intentions. But we will help you avoid making it. So thanks for joining us. Okay, it's August, and although summer is almost over, marathon training season is still in full swing. Lots of listeners are probably well into their marathon training plans for one of the big fall marathons, although I'm sure there are some listeners who may just be getting started with a training plan and probably even more listeners who have never run a marathon but are thinking about doing it, maybe feeling a little bit intimidated. There's just so much knowledge out there, training, nutrition, injury prevention, race tactics, on and on and on and on. And we at Runner's World, of course, have been speaking to people about these things for, well, just about 50 years, (laughs) given it's our 50th anniversary. So recently we put out a call on Twitter to ask listeners for their most burning marathon-related questions. And we got hit with a barrage of great queries. So we figured we would devote an entire episode of the Runner's World show to answering those questions. And with me here today are three experts in this field. First, executive editor Tish Hamilton. Tish has run 51 marathons, including 12 Boston marathons. She's currently training for marathon number 52, which is New York City in November. We also have Bud Coates, who is our training director here at Runner's World and at Rodale. Bud is a 213 marathoner. Yes, that's two hours and 13 minutes who ran in four consecutive Olympic marathon trials between 1984 and 1996. And we have the mayor of running, Bart Yasso, who has run more than 150 marathons. He basically stopped counting or lost track after 150. 
and he travels on average to 30 marathons a year as an ambassador of the sport. And between Bud and Bart, they have trained thousands of runners for marathons over the decades. So I really can't think of three better people to be here talking about this topic. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks on behalf of our listeners who are going to get so much great information. So let's just dive right in. Um, The first question here is from Richie Rodriguez. And the question is, what is the best hydration strategy for a 26.2? Do I bring my own? Do I use race hydration stops or both? So Bart, what do you think? So best hydration strategy. Well, first off, all races, I'll just use the Runner's World Half as an example, our own half marathon. We put on the course map how many hydration stops we have, what we're serving at each hydration stop. So, you know, the big question, I would not carry my own unless there was something I was really used to and and whatever the race is serving on the course disagrees with me. But you practice it in your training. This is what you do on your long runs. You practice exactly what you plan on eating and hydrating and you do it in practice and then race day it's flawless but you got to find out make sure that everything agrees with you what they're serving on course a lot of races not only do they tell you the the fluid replacements they even tell you the flavor they're going to serve on race day right kind of two two answers to the question is number one just as Bart has said go on the website and really understand be a good student of the race and what they supply and where they supply it. And then if you can, you want to set those those types of uh, stations up on your long run. And, you know, it might not be perfect, but at least you get the, the uh, electrolyte replacement in that they're offering. And you realize right away whether or not you're able to digest it and it's comfortable, you know, about how many sips to take. The other thing is, too, don't hesitate to stop and walk while you drink this fluid because trying to run and drink is is rather difficult. The couple minutes or seconds that you lose when you stop and walk and drink, you'll save on the far end when you don't bonk. Right. So here's something that a lot of people wonder about, Tish. How much should we drink during a marathon? Should people drink at every single water stop? Right. So I think that's something that uh, you need to think about before you get into the race, which is how often and how much are you going to drink and go into it with a plan. So are you going to drink at every um, aid station? Are you going to drink at every other aid station? And of course, a lot of this has got to do with your pace. If you're somebody who's running a six-minute mile, you don't need to go to every mile marker and, and take a big drink of water because, you know, you're, you're going pretty quickly. If you're running a 12-minute pace or, or slower, you may need to go to every station. Um, that there's, uh, you should, you know, the Recommendations are drinking to your thirst and listening to your thirst. Um, for me personally, I usually go every 30 minutes. So it sort of depends on how fast or slow I'm running. And I'll take a 20 to 30 minutes and I'll take a cup and make sure I get all of it in. I can use Gatorade, so I'll do that if it's on the course. Um, the other thing that races will tell you is uh, usually is like not only where they're tables are, but in what order. So if they're having their sports drink first or their water second, so you can know this and have a plan. That's the most important thing. Have a plan in your head before you get into the race. Right. Okay. And I'd like to add one more thing to that as well, in that um, it gets pretty congested out there on the marathon. You know, large marathons, you know, you're, you're very rarely by yourself. 
So don't hesitate to let the people around you know that you're headed to the water station or to the electrolyte replacement station. And, you know, everybody's in it for the same reason. They want to do as well as they can. So they're going to, if they're not going to stop, they're going to let you go by and, and, and get over there rather than cut someone off and, and, you know, stop right in front of them and so on and so forth. So courtesy is huge at the aid stations. Yeah. I was just going to say, the other thing is um, I always point to the to the volunteer who I'm going to take the water from or the Gatorade from, and I always say, thank you. Great. That is literally exactly what I was about to say, Tish. <laughs> oh, I love it. So with that, move on to the next question. This one from Jessica Black. She says, I'm signed up for the Philadelphia half coming up in September. Half, not the marathon. What are the suggestions for eating the morning of the race and for hydrating? So even though she's asking about a half marathon, obviously, whatever the answer is, is applicable to a marathon. What should she eat and drink the morning of? So one of the things about this is uh, um, while we're in August, it's really important to train with uh, what you think you're going to eat the morning of. And you need to have... um, you know, X number of calories uh, before a marathon or before a half marathon, and you need to practice this. So a very common breakfast for many runners is a bagel with peanut butter and maybe a little bit of honey. So you get enough uh, carbs from your bagel. You get some um, protein and sticking uh, power from the uh, peanut butter, um, and the honey just makes it taste good. Yeah. Um, Uh, and then also you want to, um, to, to drink with that. You know, you don't want to overhydrate uh, uh, because that can be dangerous too. But, you know, you want to have like probably 16 ounces of, of water or sports drink, whatever it is that you like to drink. And then depending on how much time you've got in between when you get up and when you're going to race, um, you may want to have a little bit of a snack right before the, at the starting line, uh, the start gun goes off. So that, and that might be graham crackers. And I also have to say, if you're somebody who drinks coffee, usually before your run, definitely drink it on the morning of. If you never drink coffee, don't try it on the morning of your race. Uh-huh. Um, this is all stuff that's important to practice while you're doing your long training runs. Right. So, Tish, you said X calories a minute ago. What do you mean by X calories? Um, the range is 300 to 500, but can you correct me on that? No, that's, pr- that's pretty close. I, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing is is that, you know, number one, you know, and Tish uh, mentioned it right away, is your long runs, every one of your long runs is a dress rehearsal for the marathon and the half marathon. So you learn over time, um, you know, somebody may say, you know, 300 calories. Well, are you going to weigh the bagel and, you know, how much peanut butter you put on it and you know, spoon out a half a teaspoon of honey. You're not going to do that. But what you're going to realize is that an hour after eating the bagel and peanut butter and honey, you feel great and you go out for your your long run. And within five or 10 minutes, your stomach just starts to cramp up and things aren't quite great. So you make a a note. Um, And then the next long run, you you get up and you you eat that bagel and and peanut butter and honey or, or maybe you tweak that a little bit an hour and a half before you go out. And you learn over time exactly how long before, you know, the gun goes off or you're, you're headed out the door that everything seems to be settled in your stomach and, and you're ready to go. Because what you have to remember is anything in your stomach is going to require blood flow for digestion. As soon as you step out the door and go for a run, a lot of that blood flow is going to have to go to the legs, the working muscles, and all of a sudden you're sharing. And you've got to be able to share, you know, proportionally. 
So Bart, I make I've made this pro- uh, mistake in the past, uh, being so focused on hydrating, hydrating, hydrating. Actually, drink too much, you know, before running a marathon, and you know, in the first mile or two, I can feel the liquids like sloshing around in my stomach. That you can actually drink too much before. Yeah, your race, right? Yeah, there's a lot of runners that drink too much, and I I always know who those runners are because two miles into the race, they're running to the porta potties on the side of the road, and uh, you can't overhydrate. And and all these races have plenty of fluids out there, so you should go in what I call properly hydrated, and then make sure you hydrate uh, during the race. But, yeah, but overhydrating or drinking a lot of fluids right before you start is just not the way to do it. I always. Stop my fluids 60 minutes out. I get up early enough that I get some fluids in me. 60 minutes out, I don't have any fluids, and then I take advantage of the fluids on the course. And in addition to that, too, hydration doesn't start the morning of the race. It starts three or four days before the race. And if you're, if you're getting enough fluids in uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, then you don't really have to worry too much about dehydrating between Saturday and Sunday because you're not really going to be doing all that much as far as exercise is, con- excuse me, is concerned. And, you know, a simple test to, you know, determine whether or not you're overhydrating is, is if you can sleep through the night. Um, you know, if you, if you get up once in, in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom, that's fine. But if you get up two or three times, you're, you're overhydrated and you're interfering with your rest. So, um, you know, you know that, you know, you know once a night's fine, and it's probably a good idea to make sure you're getting up once a night because then you are hydrated. But any more than that, you're you're drinking too much and you're getting, you know, not only um, sleep interrupted, but, you know, you're, you're just doing way more than you need to. That's a great tip. Okay. We have a question from a first-timer, Caleb Ardizoni. Hope I say that last name correctly. What are the most important things for a first-time marathoner to know going into the race? Is it hydration? Is it nutrition? Or is it something else? Bart, what do you think? Oh, it's something else. (laughs) Bud, (laughs) Tish, Bart, we've all made this mistake. The number one thing that 90% of runners do, even experienced runners, is start out a marathon too quickly. And the statistics prove that over 90% run a positive split slow down in the second half of the marathon. It's the most important thing to start correctly, but it's also the hardest thing because you feel so good early on. You think, oh my God, I can run to St. Louis at this pace and the race is in Philadelphia. But uh, it's absolutely the number one mistake that runners make. What's a good way to make sure that I don't go out too fast? Because it's easy to understand that I shouldn't do that, but it's so hard to actually execute it. Absolutely. I mean, I think the the biggest problem is is that, and it's and it's you know it should be the problem um, is that for most of your long runs, you're not really rested. You're, you've been training during the week, and you've been working. And if there's you know family chores that need to get done, you do all those things. Well, the week before the marathon, your your mileage is going to be far less uh, than it has been during the training. You're probably going to push off anything you have to do around the house. And you may even be traveling so that, you know, you're just kind of hanging out in a hotel room. You're really rested. And, and that's important. It's really important. But when the gun goes off, um, for the first-time marathoners especially, you should really just treat the first 10 to 15 miles like it's your Sunday long run. Really keep the effort in that Sunday long run range. And if, um, you know, if there's someone around you that you can carry a conversation on with, that's the easiest way to tell that you're aerobic. If you can run along and talk and maybe have to pause a little bit to, to listen to a conversation, 
that's where you need to be. But if you're huffing and puffing, um, you know, if you really listen to your, your breathing, you can control your pace. And, um, you know, if you don't, unfortunately, you know, it's not a lot of fun. And when Bart re- referred to, you know, most marathoners running positive splits, running positive splits is not a positive thing. Mm-hmm. You want to run negative splits. And what that means is that your second half is actually a little bit quicker than your first half. Right. And, of course, a positive split meaning your second half right. <laughs> is a lot slower than yeah. your first half. Yep. Right. So we actually have another question from a listener named Rich Fela asking about positive splits. He, he says, I have run seven marathons, but always with a positive split. What should my training focus be to help improve that? So, but you just talked about breathing and the talk test. Bart, you got any other advice for Rich about how to um, improve his chances for running a negative split during his training? Sure. Yeah. And that's the way you got to, if you do your long runs in a negative split style, so if you accelerate through your long runs, do the first five miles at a set pace and then the middle part of the, the long run at a little bit faster pace and then close strong, almost that race pace, that's where you're going to teach your body how to do it. And then it's going to, then you will do it on race day. But it's hard to do. People just, uh, one thing, people just don't believe that they can, if they go out too slowly, they lose confidence that yeah. they won't be able to run the second half faster. But I can tell you this, when you run a negative split and you're running stronger than everyone in the immediate area that you're running, it's the greatest feeling in the world. And it fuels your mental feeling that you're doing well. Yeah. So I think a lot of people take the mindset, and first timers in particular, that, wow, 26.2 miles, that's a really long time. I'm going to be very tired at the end, no matter what happens. So if I, quote, bank some time early on, that means that when I inevitably get tired, I won't lose as much time as I would otherwise. You guys are saying that that, that doesn't make any – that actually doesn't work at all. It's the craziest thing out there, banking time. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I have two little quotes that I use a lot. And number one is money in the bank takes energy from the tank. Uh, and when you go out quickly – you're using up energy that, that you're just wasting. You're not being efficient. And then the other thing is, is that the slower you go out, the more control you have over how fast you can finish. The faster you go out, the less control you have over how slow you're going to finish. And it's a whole lot faster, more fun to finish quickly. And as Bart said, um, you know, be the passer as or the, rather than the passee. And I always refer to that. The, the other people on the course is dominoes. I love knocking dominoes over as I go by them, but I hate being one of those dominoes that's getting knocked hmm. over. Yeah, yeah. Um, in many of the races, they will have uh, um, corrals based on, on your projected finish times. Um, and it's like especially one like Boston where, where they're very, very strict about the corrals. So you're starting with people who are running your pace pretty much. Um, and so it's really important. To, 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 not, to not go out too fast. And one of the ways to do that is to pass no one. So, like, don't think about passing people in, this, in that first mile, in those first five miles, those first ten miles. Like, let people go because if you do that, if you let people go and you stay within yourself, you're going to see them again. You're going to see them in less than can. That's going to be really satisfying. <laughs> so that's a mantra of sorts for you, Tish, right? You, yeah, you say that to no yourself? One. Pass no one. Pass no yeah. one. Pass no one. Um, 
And, and so but another hard thing, though, is to say, OK, like if I'm passing no one, like the whole race is going to go by me. And I'm like, how slowly do I run exactly? Like a 15-minute mile? That's crazy. Um, so, so one of the questions I would ask you, Bud Coates, is like how do you – if you're a first-timer and you haven't run races, how do you know what your pace should be? Should you base that on your long run pace? Well, I think, um, you know, it, it's – you need to use the long run pace as an estimate and it depends too on, on all of the training that you're doing. Um, you know, what types of quality work, what types of tempo runs are you doing? Have you raced? There's a lot of information out there that can, um, you know, as long as you're doing all the training, as long as you're getting the long runs in and the quality runs in, you can use some of the other race information to help you get a guide as to what your expected marathon time should be. So if you've, if you've done, you know, your long runs and you've done the, the training and you run a 5K or a 10K or even a half marathon, that can legitimately tell you, you know, approximately where you should finish. And again, approximately. If, however, you're, you're really skimping on the training and um, you run a good 10K, well, of course you're going to run a good 10K on, you know, you know low-quality marathon training, but that's not going to equate up as well. So you have to be careful there. Um, so really for the first-timer, uh, you know, again, I would, I would just start out at my, my long-run pace that I've been doing on Sundays, try to stick with that through 10, 15 miles. And then at the time when your body starts talking to you, um, you'll, you'll, you'll hesitate to get too greedy. Um, and, you know, if you feel good, great. Um, it, it's an awesome thing. The other thing, too, is we all, we all go into races and especially marathons with goals, but we have to take the course into consideration. We have to take the day into consideration. So, you know, we could have had some great training and it could be a fairly flat course, but if all of a sudden it's 92 degrees and it's really humid and there's a bit of a headwind, it's not the day you were planning on. So you've really got to scale back. That is such – that's a great point and it's such a hard thing to do. I remember running the 2007 Chicago Marathon and I was trying to BQ and it was that famously hot day. You know, it was in the 80s and I was running with a friend and I stupidly stuck with my plan. You know, we still went out there and we tried to, you know, run 638 pace for the first 10 miles and, you know, you guys all could – predict what happened. You know, I completely hit the wall in that insane heat. And when I was walking down Lakeshore Drive at the end, how can people actually have the discipline to let go of of the goal that they had for a specific race? You know, something they've trained for 16 weeks for, but it turns out that it's too hot or some other unpredictable thing has happened. Maybe they, you know, ended up getting sick, you know, the night or two before the race. What's a good way for people to let go of that initial goal? Drop your ego. You know, live to run another day. Um, you know, I've, I've done it both ways. And, um, you, know, you know, letting your ego get in the way and not paying attention, you know, to the weather and to the course and things like that. You don't win. You just don't win. And uh, w- when, when you do respect all those things, sometimes you do win. Um, you know, there, there are plenty of stories uh, of, of elite runners and, and, you know, middle of the pack runners who have realized right up front that this is just not a good day. Um, I'm going to take it easy. And halfway through the race, um, they realize, wow, you know, I'm doing pretty good. 
Steve Spence is a perfect example, uh, uh, an international class runner for the United States um, who in the world championships was not really um, thought to place in the top 15 or 20 and he ended up getting a bronze medal just because he respected the heat on a day that was just really incredible. You know, when you go into a marathon, uh, we always say in, in the magazine, it's good to have three goals, an A goal, a B goal, a C goal. So your A goal is your, like, pie-in-the-sky goal. Everything went great with my training. I never got a cold once. My kid's sleeping through the night. Um, my spouse is supportive. Um, and it's a perfect day. There's no headwind. It's a slightly downhill course, and, and everything's great. That's your A goal. Your B goal is, is like, you know, okay, you know, you add um, maybe some minutes to your time, your pace, your finish time, and it's it's a goal that you're still pretty, you know, you're still pretty good with, um, uh, but it's not quite as pie in the sky. And the seagull really for most, I would say for pretty much everybody, is just going to be get across the finish line because and, and you know, feel good about your cell, your body, feel still feel good on you, in your body um, because even if it's the worst day and you have your worst time, and I just finished my worst time in like a decade uh, in Boston this year, um, still, you know, I finished the Boston Marathon, and there are not that many people in in the, the country and in the world that finish a marathon. So, and that's something still to be really proud about. It's so important to feel like when you're out there running through all those miles that you are succeeding, you are working towards success. So if you have to redefine what success means, maybe on this day it doesn't mean your Boston qualifier, but you got to have something in your mind that feels like it is still success. Otherwise, trust me, I've learned this the hard way. It is no fun. You train for 16 weeks and you don't have any fun on race day. I mean, to me, that's that's like the worst case scenario. That, that's not what it's about. It's, and sometimes you do have to readjust on the fly, you know, while you're in the race. You have to say, okay, you know, all right. 4.15 was my, my slow time, but now it's going to be 4.30. I mean, actually, I'm at 4.45. Actually, if I finish <laughs> right. under 5, that's still a good finish. Right. I'd right. like to add one more thing to, to actually help answer Rich's question. And here's a guy who's run seven marathons, and he it sounds like all of them have been you know positive. He's, he's slowed down toward the end. What I've tried to get a, a couple of people to do that, that have been in that situation is take their total time of the last two or three marathons, divide it in half. Um, and, and that's the half you want to go through in in your next marathon. Because what Rich has experienced is, you know, if he looked at the times he was going through halfway, it was far faster than the second half. So his his fitness was was at a point where he could obviously finish and say, say he went out in, you know, an hour and 50 minutes for the first half and ran 2.10 for the second half. And that's actually not terrible, but but if he decided to go out in two hours, because he's definitely capable of running four hours, that adds up to four hours. If he goes out in two hours, he's conserving some energy, so he can definitely finish in two, another two hours for the second half and maybe faster. So use use your experience to set your goal. All right, another great training tool, Bart, and also a great uh, predictor for your marathon time, of course, are the Yasso 800s. So we have a question from Pirate Girl Running. At what pace should I aim for with Yasso 800? So maybe just explain quickly what Yasso 800s are and and then uh, give Pirate Girl Running some some advice. What I always tell people about the Yasso 800s, it's really – if you have a set goal – I'll use an example, three hours and 30 minutes in the marathon or four hours in the marathon. Just do the 800s at that. So the 800s would be 
in minutes and seconds. So if you're trying to do a 330 marathon, do the 800-meter repeat, three minutes and 30 seconds. Or trying to go under four hours, do the 800 meters in four minutes. When I did them, I did 10 of them with right. a 400-meter recovery. You can, If you're new to the track, start out doing two to, two to three, build up to five to six, and then really do the 10 times 800 with a 400-meter recovery. That's the key workout. But you really want to do them. That 800-meter time should be the gold time in your marathon. Okay, another question from Mallory Hayes about training. I am running the Lowland Marathon next month. What tips do you have for downhill course training? What do you think, bud? Well, I think the, the most important thing to do, again, uh, remember that your, your long runs and, and your training is are dress rehearsals for the actual marathon. So attempt to get um, some courses under your belt that include downhill running. And as, if you can, try to get the elevation drop or the percent drop to be somewhat similar. Along with that, what you, what you want to remember is, um, you know, in, in the marathon itself and even in your training, run at a pace that you're quiet while you're running downhill. Um, if, you're, if you feel your feet slapping on the ground, you're, number one, you're really aggravating the, the muscles and the tendons um, while you're doing that. But you're probably also um, running with a stride length that's a little bit too long. So, you know, shorten up your stride just a little bit. Um, run quiet and comfortable. And, um, you know, by doing that in training, you're going to train the, the muscles of the quads and the calves and, and the lower back to really adjust to downhill running. Um, and then the biggest thing is once you get into the race, you know, remember all those things. Don't let the, you know, the downhill really get you a little overexcited about some massive PR because, uh, unfortunately, you know, it can come out to, to haunt you. And, you know, the Boston Marathon is also, you know, uh, set up that same way. The first like eight to nine miles, it, actually the first five miles has severe downhill. And then it continues um, for another four miles. And people really get rolling and they're running these great splits. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the uh, terrain levels out and then you start to get some rolling hills. And uh, it just does. It really comes back to haunt you. So you've got to run under control and try to run quiet. Most people think that downhill running is easy. It sounds like it should be easy, right? But it actually isn't true. And basically that's because of this thing called eccentric contractions, right, which is a, a different way that your muscles are affected by running downhill all the pounding. Is that the right term? And are there any exercises, any cross-training moves that people can do to train those muscles to better withstand those eccentric contractions. Yeah, what an eccentric contraction is, it's when your muscle is actually trying to contract and get longer at the same time. And that's what happens when your foot lands on the ground and your knee bends and your quadricep, your thigh muscle, is resisting against you basically falling on the ground. You know, importantly, you know, in your training, you want to include some downhills. The other thing that you can do is um, include lunges in your training, include um, squats in your training. Just be careful that you don't go down too low. You don't want to put too much stress on the knees. I usually say one-third squats and one-third lunges are, are very good. But once you go past, um, you know, close to 90 degrees with a knee angle, then, you know, you, you can um, play with some trouble there. So the strength training can really be helpful. And, and you know, the other thing, too, is jumping rope is actually very good. Uh, because you're leaving the ground, huh. you're landing, you're, you're, you're forcing the, the uh, legs to bend in an eccentric way. 
And you're also training the calves at the same time. All right. Jumping rope is part of a marathon training plan. That's new to me. You know, if you are doing downhill training, and there are a number of, of fall marathons that have net downhills and that, that people pick for the, for the um, attempt for a Boston qualifier like St. George in Utah and right in our backyard, uh, one in Steamtown, Scranton, PA, um, that if you're doing this kind of uh, downhill training um, in practice, that you may need more recovery time, and you need to respect that. Um, you, you know, definitely, this is going to be key for for being able to um, bounce back and go to your next training run. You could, you want to maybe you want to do your ice bath. You want to put your legs up the wall when you come home. You want to make sure you get your protein in. Uh, you know, within your thirty minute window, you're really going to have to take care of your body um, uh, because um, it is it is hard on your body. Good point. Yep. All right. Recovery time. That's a good segue to uh, the next question from EL. How soon do you recommend running another 26.2 after just having run one? What do you think, Bart? Wow. Yeah. I mean, that depends on where you are in your running career. If it's your first marathon, uh, you can tell a first-time marathoner the day after a marathon because they really (laughs) can't get out of the hotel to get to the cab or the Uber that's going to take them to the airport. I'm laughing because I've been there. Oh, that's a first-time marathoner because – your body does get used to it a little bit. You still are sore even whether it's your 50th or whatever. But those first-timers really – you really need to back off and take a break. And I always tell people it only depends on how well you do in the marathon. If you run a personal best, a personal record, you've done something your body's never done before. You owe it. You should respect it and allow recovery because the people that get greedy and say, oh, I did so well. I want another PR right away. That's where the injury bug comes in. Respect your body, listen to your body, and back off. And your body will tell you, you know, start out with just some easy runs after you rest a couple days, and you'll know when it's ready to come back. Yeah. So one maxim that I've had in my head for years, I'm not even sure where it came from, probably the pages of Runner's World back in the day, was that however many miles your race is, that's the number of days that you should effectively yep. take off from either hard training or, or doing another big race. Is that right, bud? Yeah, it's a great rule of thumb. Um, and it's lasted, you know, it's one of the you know, items that have lasted the test of time. You know, uh, you know, a day off or very easy for every mile you race. And, and you know, the marathon um, really brings that to light. I mean, sometimes you can run a 5K or a 10K and within a, within a day or two, you're, you're feeling pretty good. But the marathon... It just really takes it out of you. There's a lot more muscle breakdown in the marathon. You know, you've you've depleted your carbohydrates. Um, you've probably dehydrated during the marathon or come very close. So there's a lot of body functions that just need to replace themselves. And my uh, my my uh, favorite quote was from Frank Shorter years ago. Um, you know, he was asked the same question, and he said, "Well." My, my my answer to that is you have to forget about the last one before you even start thinking about training for the next one. <laughs> right. And I think that's really good. Yeah. All right. Really great related question. Uh, oh, and obviously, so you run a marathon, that's 26 days, you know, give or take that you should be looking at for another marathon. But obviously, one of the things that makes runners so apprehensive about following this advice, again, you know, people who have trained so hard and gotten so fit is this fear that you're going to lose your fitness, right? So Evan Moore asks a great related question. He says, I'm between races right now, and I've effectively taken a month or more off from training. 
how quickly do you lose your training base? Tish. Well, see, now one thing I want to say is, you know, you guys are talking about taking 26 days off after a marathon. And, and it's, and you know, when we say 26 days off, we don't mean go sit on the couch with an, a giant bag of potato <laughs> chips and a bottle of, uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and, and, and stop moving Every night all. for 26 days. Exactly. Oh, I got so. it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing we we're know, listening. You're gonna, and it, it can be something as simple as taking your dogs for a walk, um, but you want to move, and and um, and so you know you walk your dogs. You maybe go to a gentle yoga class if that's something you've done before. Maybe you get on your bike to run some errands around town. Maybe you get in the pool and move your legs around. You know you want to you want to stay moving because that's going to uh, speed your recovery too to make you feel better. And, you know, as um, running addicts, you know, we're used to that. We're used to having exercise every day and we're used to the, to the mental break or all of that stuff. So you want you wanna, um, to, to do a little bit of movement. Um, anyway, so, okay, so now this, this uh, questioner is asking how soon do you lose your training base? And actually I think what he wants to know is how do I get back into it after I've taken a month off? And this is a great question because I just took the month off of July running and, and Bud Coates is helping me. So what do I do, Bud? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, what, what I like to tell people is however many weeks you took off, that's how many weeks it's going to take you to ease back into your training. And, you know, having, having trained for a while, you know, you, you do have some history there. Um, and while you'll lose the fitness that you had, physiologically, you've, you've got the makeup in your body. So if you take, you know, if you take four weeks off, then plan on three to four weeks to ease back into the training that you were doing previously. And, you know, and you should be fine. The mistake is, is that you think you can jump right back into where you were, and your body's not quite ready. And that's, that's when we all really have a, a hard time with injuries and aches and pains that just don't go away. Yeah, I, I find that people can run faster under-trained than overtrained. Oh yeah, because they go on overtrained. A lot of times, the overtraining leads to illness, leads to injury, and uh, people that are undertrained get to the starting line. Now, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not professing to undertrain, but the overtraining is really what gets you. And yeah. I mean, and you can spiral downward for a long time. Yeah, I remember uh, running before I ran the Austin Marathon in 2007. I took three and a half weeks off because I had a little bit of an Achilles injury before the marathon, and I was an absolute basket case. You know, I thought, oh, my God, I lost all this training, and I was complaining to Ambie, Ambie Burfoot, in the locker room one day, describing to him, you know, what had happened and how many weeks I'd taken off and how I was so worried about, you know, the marathon that was coming up. And he said, oh, that sounds just about perfect to me. And and I looked at him like he was crazy, and I said, what do you mean perfect? And he said, you're healthy. Your injury's gone, right? And I said, "Yeah, it's gone." He said, "You're gonna, you're probably gonna run the race of your life." And sure enough, I ran a PR <laughs> because I wasn't overtrained. I showed up on the starting line healthy and rested. And the training that I had done, I didn't lose it in three weeks. I had a really good base. So I, I do think this question of how, how quickly do you lose your fitness is a really interesting one. And I know that there's sort of an ongoing debate or at least conversation about it. Um, but is there some kind of formula for it? How quick and does it how much of it depends on your age and maybe the level of fitness that you're at? Well, I think all of those things go go into the I, there is no specific formula that I'm aware of. Um, 
you have to know why you took the time off. Was it because you were sick? Um, you're going to recover from recover from being sick fairly quick because once it's gone, it's gone. Um, you could be injured, um, have an unrunning related injury that made you take some time off, which means once that's gone, you're ready to roll. Um, if you have a running related injury now, you know when you're coming back, you have to be careful not to reaggravate it. So there's really no set you know formula that tells you exactly how long it's going to take to get back. Okay. But I will say this: the, you don't lose it as fast as people think. Like Correct. your typical runner Correct. thinks, yeah. two days. Oh my God, I should kill myself. I'll never be yeah. able to the run. Paranoia again. comes in, and there. that's yeah. not the truth. Yeah. Yep. So Bart, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but let's move to a question from Corey. How important is it to be mentally prepared for a race? You don't learn the mental game during the race. You got to train for it. You have to dream about it. You got to set these goals. And that's the mental part of it. First off, you got to believe in the goal, whatever that may be. Get a Boston qualifier, break four hours. You have to believe in yourself, and that's where it starts. All the goals that I set, that I achieved, I I would have dreams about them. Huh. And then they would come true. Right. So visualization, do you do that, Tish? Dina Castor, who won... The bronze medal in the 2004 yep, Olympics, Olympics in Athens yep. um, takes visualization very, very seriously. And she will lie down on the bed and practice her races in her head for like five to ten minutes. And she talks about this and she says she actually has broken out in a sweat um, visualizing running. Wow. Uh, and so she, you know, makes a real practice of seeing every part of the course, um, you know, from the start to the middle miles to the finish line. And uh, she's very, very into this idea of visualization and positive thinking. And that helps her uh, be mentally strong at the race. But what did you used to tell yourself when you were running in a race, running very, very fast and pushing the red line and presumably suffering uh, you know, pretty badly at some point. What 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 was going on in your head? Well, well, the interesting thing was is that the in my really good races, I didn't suffer. Yeah. Um. I I, I fatigued, but um, I was able to just run through it. the The trend today is for a lot of people to train with music, and I've never I've never trained with music. I've never raced with music, and they said, "Well, what do you think about? What do you do?" I'm like, "Well." You know, early in the race, I'm, you know, making sure I'm running under control. I'm checking my breathing. I, I get my splits. I, you know, pay attention to what's going on around me. Um, but even before that, uh, and, you know, I think this is really important for everybody out there, whether you're an experienced runner or a new uh, newbie out there, is take, a, take the time before the race starts. When you're out there on the starting line, you know, just before they play the national anthem, to pat yourself on the back and and applaud yourself um, for for getting to where you are. You're a very rare person. Not many people, percentage wise, in the, in the United States or in the world, run marathons. And you're on that line. What a hoot! You know, you've trained for this long. This is almost your party. This is your celebration. So right away, change change your attitude. Like this is good. this is great. This is un- unbelievable. Not only that. But you're sharing it with like five or ten or fifteen thousand more people with the same frame of mind. It's so cool. And then you're running down the road and you've got people cheering for you that don't even know who you are. 
And every two miles, you got people giving you water and, and, you know, cheering you on. It's the coolest thing. So, you know, you can use mental preparation before the race and so on and, and, and do all these other things. But don't forget to enjoy the journey from the starting line to the right. finish line. <clears throat> right. Also, mantras, right? Another great mental tool to use during the race. I remember somebody asked Dean Carnazis after he ran, I believe it was 350 miles in a row. They said, how in the world do you run 350 miles? And he said, well, you pick out a tree and you run to that tree. And then when you get to that tree, you pick out a telephone pole and you run to that telephone pole. And when you get to that, you pick out a road sign and you run to that road sign. That's how you run 350 miles. And that reminds me of one of my mantras, which I think may have also come from the the wise Dina Castor. Run the mile you're in. Whether you're at mile three or mile 13, don't be thinking about, oh, my God, I've got 13 miles to go. Just run that mile. And then when you get to that mile marker, you run that mile. And it is amazing what a difference it can make. Tish, you have mantras as well, I know. Yes, but I'm also going to say, you know, we're, we're, we're talking very positively here. And, and, and it is important to stay as positive as possible. But, you know, you're going to have low moments. Um, you're you're going to have periods that are not going to be as happy and as positive. And, and um, you know, it, it's going to seem you know, not so great, like you're not having such a great day. So one of the things to know is, yes, you know, I'm having a low moment, but this is going to pass. This too shall pass. Yeah. And and it's kind of amazing. Like you can be really wallowing and going like, oh, why did I sign up for this race? What is the meaning of life? Um, and then, you know, like a couple of blocks down, like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't feel so bad after all. Right. Things are looking up. So right. so knowing that you're going to have bad moments and then and, and just kind of expect them and acknowledge it. Say, OK, I'm having a bad moment. What do I need to do? Do I need to adjust my gait? Do I need to make sure I take some more Gatorade? Do I need to take a sip of water? Uh, you know, do I need to find somebody to smile at? Whatever. You know, it will pass and, and you'll be OK. The women's Olympic marathon was three days ago, and Desi Linden afterward, and she ran such a great race. I think she finished seventh. Afterward, she said, and she was running by herself toward the end, you know, in brutal heat and sunshine, alone in an Olympic marathon, trying to push it. She said afterward, yeah, I ran into a bit of a rough patch, but I got myself out of it. You know, that's a very short sentence, but man, there's so much in there to... I can only imagine what Desi's little rough patch must have felt like. It must have been hell on earth, right, running that hard, that fast, and that heat. And then just matter-of-factly, but I got myself out of it. And just the wisdom behind that to, again, like you said, Tish, just you stick with it and you know that it's going to end. And it actually is kind of amazing how bad you can feel, but if you can get yourself through it, how good you can feel after you feel that bad. The first time I went through that, it, bl- it blew me away. And now that's the thing I remind myself of every single time. Okay, so the question then is, what do you do exactly to get through those rough patches, right? Which ties into what will make our last question from a runner named Nohemi Lopez. What can you do when you hit the wall, specifically, Bart? I think it's so much mental. You know, people get those rough patches they give up mentally, and then it's really hard to get mm-hmm. out of a rough patch, especially if you start to feel better. But mentally, you just gave up. I just think it's all in your head when you hit those rough patches to stay positive, deal with it, figure out what, what you can do to, to feel better, and then make the adjustments. When we talked about goals A, B, and C, 
you had a really rough rough patch. It's time to go to goal C and just get to that finish line. How about physical cues, but in addition to the mental? Anything to do with your hands or your shoulders? You talked earlier about breathing. Any Anything uh, in that realm that, that runners can think about as a way to get over that wall? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, w- when I saw this question, I thought that the most important thing you need to do is just regroup. Um, you know, take take a, like a, a, a body analysis. Um, you know, what am I doing with my feet? What am I doing with my legs? What am I doing with my stomach? What am I doing with my arms? Are my shoulders wrapped up around my ears? Um, and um, and just, just try to relax. And, and while you're relaxing, you probably need to slow down a little bit too. Um, I mean, most of the time when we run into these bad patches, it's because we've been asking our body to do a little bit more than it's really ready to do. And that was probably what was happening with Des. The pace picked up. Um, it was a little sporadic. And she realized when, when the pace picked up and she tried to do that, she just wasn't ready for it yet. And she made an amazing decision, one that's incredibly hard to do, especially at that level. She slowed down by choice. She didn't slow down because she had to. But she knew that if she didn't slow down when she did, then a mile or two later, she wasn't going to have a choice. So she backed off, she regrouped, she probably spent a little bit longer with her water bottle or with her electrolyte replacement. She may even had um, some type of gel to get a little nourishment in during that period of time. And, um, and again, did a body check, she, you know, relax my shoulders, don't get uptight, don't get worried, you know, um, you know, keep the breathing under control so that, you know, stress levels are easy to t- handle because, you know, if you're mentally strained while you're trying to go through all this, it's, it's just like being at work or at home or, you know, in a traffic jam on a highway. You've got to just really, again, you know, not only run the mile you're in, but live in the moment. And, you know, if you can get yourself through those things, um, you can get yourself to the finish line, like Bart said. One of the things that I do also is I think about my stride rate. Um, studies show that the most efficient stride rate is between 170 and 180, right? So obviously it's something that you can do easily while you're running. You know, you just look at your watch and you count down for a minute and you count how many times one foot hits the ground and you multiply by two. Number one, that gives me something to do. It sort of distracts me from how I'm feeling. It helps me sort of reset. And it gives me a little information. You know, if, if I'm at, you know, 160, then I know that I can uh, maybe adjust my stride a little bit, which isn't the same as running faster or running slower, but just thinking about where my feet hit the ground and that can help. And it can also give me something that I can measure. If I do it, uh, you know, 15 minutes later, I test my stride rate again. And if I, you know, am in the 170 range, I know that I've just done something small but constructive that is actually making me more efficient and is going to help me finish the rest of that race. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Two great points. There is one, you know, the idea that you're counting your strides, it's called dissociation. You're, you're just taking your mind away from the marathon and, and all the work and and that bad patch you're in, and it's almost like daydreaming. Um, you know, you're out there moving and so on, but you're, you're counting those strides. And then you do. Um, you know, when you slow down, you typically start overstriding. And when you're overstriding, your cadence is slowing down. So that's a great point, David. Hitting the wall, of course, is also about glycogen depletion. 
So it means, you know, your energy stores have run low. It doesn't just mean you're a weak person, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and studies also show that, that actually it's your brain that, that, that um, is going to quit on you first. It's not your body that's, that's falling apart. It's your brain. Your brain's going, oh, my God, what are you doing? Stop doing that right now. Let's, let's go home and take a nap. Um, so the answer to that, of course, is, um, you know, obviously we all want to avoid hitting the wall. So that, that means taking in our, our sports drink, our gels or whatever it is on a regular basis. We have planned out and tested in our training um, uh, during the race. But, you know, if you get to that point and you're starting to fall apart, you know, you probably need to get something in you. Uh, whether that's the Gatorade on the course, whether that's a gel, something you've practiced with. Um, and, you know, that will signal to your brain, okay, like, you know, we're not in a crisis state <laughs> and and you're going to be okay. And it will let you, it will let you regroup and be able to do these yeah. things. Yep. Great point. Yep. All right. Well, this has been so great. I, I've learned a lot. I think I might even sign up for a fall marathon this year <laughs> with, with all this expertise. Uh, Tish and Bart and Bud, thank you so much for doing this. And I, I'm sure that we are going to help a lot of listeners uh, run a better marathon this fall or maybe even their first marathon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We made all the mistakes. Please don't do the mistakes yeah. we made. We learned <laughs> we, from we them. speak there from being yes. there. Yes. <laughs> we want you to have a great experience. It's a lot of fun. Let's go do it. For links to more stories about marathon training and also marathon training plans designed by Bud Coates, go to runnersworld.com slash audio. And now it's time for The Kick with Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. Okay, Kit Fox with me on the kick this week. I, I know you had a busy weekend, Kit. We'll get to that in a second, right? Yeah, I did. We'll talk about that a little later, but thanks for having me again. Yeah, and so I just want to start off with an update from a story we posted on the website last week on Gabriel Grunewald. She's an elite runner, recently competed at the Olympic trials in Eugene in July. And it turns out not only did she run the 1,500 and the 5,000, well, she didn't quite make Rio, but she was definitely running with a cancerous tumor in her liver. Wow. And so she is already a two-time cancer survivor. So this is her third bout. She's only 30. But um, our reporter, Allison Wade, reached out to her last week, found out she was going into surgery on Friday. And the good news is successful surgery. She's already tweeted out and Instagrammed that everything went well. She's back on her feet, and she's like, you know, already pretty much looking forward to trying to get back into running next year. Wow. And I know that there's just been a ton of support, especially from other elite athletes who have been kind of sending their well wishes to her. And when our team spoke with her in Eugene, she talked about this, not knowing that she had this third bout of cancer. You know, younger runners maybe dealing with the same thing or other health issues, they see her as an inspiration. So we wish her well as she's going forward with yeah, this. Yeah, we want to send her our best wishes and hope for a speedy and smooth recovery here. Okay, so moving on, Kit, we have an incredible story about a guy named Ernie Andrews. Um, he ran across the country. Obviously impressive run across the country, but we do write about this mm -hmm. all the time. Why is he so unbelievable? Well, first off, Kit, he's 93. 
Wait, 9-3, as in born before <laughs> the Great Depression, 93. Yeah, as in yeah, 93 years old, World War II vet, started in San Diego three years ago, pretty much three years on the nose, finishes a nearly 3,000-mile cross-country trek. Holy crap. So he was doing this to raise money. As I mentioned, he was a World War II vet, and he worked on these amphibious tank landing ships, LSTs. So he wanted to raise awareness for this one specific one, the LST-325. It's in Indiana. So it's more for like upkeep and to just remember this ship. It was instrumental for the Allied powers when they were trying to close out World War II. And I guess you really understand how much it means to him that he was willing to cross the country. Yeah, he started running late in life, didn't do it his whole life, and then you know he decided he's just going to do this one day. And so, great story, um, and I think right now he's driving up through Canada to Alaska to just, like, chill. And I think the best news about this is it means that I still have about 70 years to plan my cross-country run. Yeah, you have plenty of time to get your map out and figure out how you want to do this. And if you want to do it in under three Three years, you, maybe you can figure that out. Okay, so we mentioned at the top, Kit, that you had a busy weekend. Tell us what you did. Yeah, I had a pretty cool assignment, if I must say so myself. I got the opportunity to run with and shadow comedian and actor Kevin Hart. Never heard of him. Never heard of he's him. Not busy this summer at all. <laughs> I think he's in, like launching his third movie of the year. If that, if not more. Yeah, yeah. if not more. Um, he ran Hood to Coast, which okay. is a 199 mile overnight relay. So teams of 12 run. Um, each person runs three legs. He was responsible for about 18 miles over the course of 24 hours. So this is this is legit. So how did he even get involved with Hood to Coast? Like, how did he even know about what it is? Yeah, so, well, he didn't really had no idea what he was getting into. But he's, um, during these free pop-up 5Ks that he's put on, he's actually partnered with Nike. Mm-hmm. And they're okay. really helping him, um, you know, spread his message of move with heart is what he's calling it, of, of getting new people to run. So <laughs> Nike came to him and was like, you want to do this event called Hooded Coast? And I think he was like, sure. And then they told <laughs> Sounds him. Sounds awesome. It's three legs over 24 hours and you'll be sleeping in a van. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> but he, uh, I mean, he bought into it, like. He was all in, loved it. He said um, after the fact that it was the most amazing running experience he's ever had. Is that like the most he's run? By far the most he's ever run. Okay. He had done one 10K before in his life. Okay. Um, but he, he handled it like a champ, and he he was just exactly how you imagine Kevin Hart would be. His <laughs> his biggest thing he was so nervous about was uh, pooping his pants in the middle, as we all would be worried about. <laughs> Does he like consider himself like a... a- a real runner now that he's done something like Hood to Coast? Like, how excited was he at the end? Well, I mean, to answer that question, I actually, you know, spoke to him so we can take a listen. You know, a lot of people go, well, I'm not a runner. I just feel like there's no such thing. You are what you say you are. Yeah. You are what you want to be. So, mm-hmm. in my mind, I'm a runner now. Yeah. I love to run. Yeah. It's a hobby. And it's something that I enjoy doing. So, mm-hmm. why can't I give myself that personal title? Yeah. Who stops me from giving myself that title? Nobody. I give it to myself and I embrace it. And I wear it proudly, which is why I'm out here, looking like a ninja. Yeah. yeah this is it. This is, this, is, this is the classic runner's costume, mm-hmm. I think, right, right there. Right <laughs> All right, Kevin. Awesome job. We're just excited for you to uh, run that first marathon now. So good luck.
Okay, and finally, Kit, this week on the website, we released our official rankings of the best running cities in the country, the top 50 cities. And as much as I want to talk to you about this, I think you're biased toward one city. Uh, I'm not biased. It's just the truth. Okay. Well, we'll get to that. But we brought down the editor who packaged all this for our October issue, Allie Nolan. She makes it the first time we have three people doing the kick at once. Historic. A crazy event. Allie, thanks for coming down. Uh, Thanks Thanks for having me. People are going to scrutinize any list. Uh, especially when you rank cities. But there was some good methodology into making this an official list. It wasn't the Chamber of Commerce paying us off, I think, as some Facebook commenters have speculated. <laughs> was it, Allie? It, it wasn't. So what were the main criteria? So the main criteria we looked at was something called the Run Index, which was just basically run clubs, races, counts of all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the park index, trails, parks, green space. Yeah, like green space nearby. Exactly. Places mm-hmm. to run. Yes, places to run. Um, climate, and that was if you had good weather. And so Alaska. Alaska. No. Not, <laughs> Alaska <laughs> didn't make the list. <laughs> Sorry, guys. For climate. Uh, food index, which is farmer's markets. Um, if you're living in a food desert, you didn't get high ranks, but if you have fresh produce nearby, things that runners like, mm-hmm. then uh, you ranked high. And then finally, we had the safety index, which is important. Um, yeah, very important. Right? And just like, you know, we didn't look at really crime rates as heavily as we looked at pedestrian fatalities and just traffic in general. And so, Ali, what did you define as a city? Because I see that Emmaus PA, where Runners World HQ, <laughs> isn't even on there. <laughs> which is disappointing. I'm sorry to disappoint. Um, but we definitely looked at largest cities in America. We were really focusing on um, places with a population of over 160,000. And then we also we pulled data from census information of cities who had the highest number of people who participated in running in the past 12 months. Okay, so... We have all this information now, but really the only thing people end up caring about is where the city ranks. So let, let's go over in suspense. Yeah, let's, let's go uh, over the top three. So what was number three on the list? Allie? Number three. Do I get a drum roll? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sound effects, man. Sorry. Drum roll, please. So number three was Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. So an, an obvious choice, things like the Boston Marathon. But what else stands out? Uh, well, they have 15 running clubs and track clubs. Uh, Bill Rogers, the running legend, is mm-hmm. you know synonymous with Boston, and um, y- you know they also have the Charles River, the 18-mile trail around that. That is kind of a legendary run when you go there. Yeah, when we go up there every year for the Boston Marathon, you pretty much have to run. The Always got to run River. on the Charles River. Okay, so number <laughs> n- what was number two? Number two is Seattle. Why Seattle? Well, I've never been there, but now I really want to go because it just sounds so beautiful. Uh, ocean views, and despite the rain, the climate is supposed to be 100. Isn't it always raining in Seattle? Um, no. <laughs> or are people just sleepless there? The people are really Ugh. sleepless, and that's why they're running all the time. Excellent. Wow. Yes. Okay, so kids' bad puns now out of the way. <laughs> What was number one? What was the top of our list? San Francisco is just a great running hub. Um, The people there are really passionate about their racing and their miles that they're putting in. Mm -hmm. And they're running more than most cities. Um, Their Strava data is really impressive. Yeah. And um, they also just have a lot of great routes. Um, You know, Golden Gate Bridge and all their different parks. And you can just pretty much travel around the city and tour historic things by running there. 
Okay, so San Francisco, uh, number one, and, and now I, I can feel Kit's tension here. He wants to complain about Denver only being 10th. They're giving me a soapbox here, and I'm going to use it <laughs> because Denver should be number one. I'm not even going to defend why because we all know it's really number one. Oh, I think Allie would say you have to look at the data. <laughs> I look at the mountains, and I can tell you it's number one. <laughs> okay, so those were the top three overall. Um, if you want to find out more, um, it, this is all in our October issue of Runner's World. It's on newsstands very soon. We actually feature three different covers of top-running cities. Um, number one, San Francisco's there, Boston. And the number seven city, Minneapolis, is also on a cover. So look out for that very soon. And if you just can't wait and you want to see the entire list of 50 cities right now, head to runnersworld.com slash best cities. And you can find out where your favorite running mecca ranks. Um, Allie, thank you for coming down explaining how the list was put together. Thank you. And Kit is always the kick. Uh, a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And if you want to see the Kit Fox's list of best running <laughs> cities, just know it's Denver. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. We know we ask this all the time, but please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review wherever you find this podcast. We really care what you think of the show, and it helps us make every episode better. I'm Runner's World Editor-in-Chief David Willey. The show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Dalek. The Runner's World Show is part of the Panoply Network. Be sure to join us next week for my in-depth interview with our chief running officer, Bart Yasso. Bart's been on the show now a couple of times, including in this episode. But in this conversation, we really dive deep into what has made his running life one of the most colorful and inspiring of them all. You won't want to miss this conversation. So we'll see you then. <laughs>